come before you this morning, um, and we just want to thank you for this time that we have to come together to study your word, to discuss your word together, and to be able to just spend a moment in your presence. And we just want to invite your spirit to be here, speak to our hearts, uh, minister to us. Uh, Father, I'm, I don't know what everyone has gone through over the weeks, but I just want to pray that your spirit would uh, really minister to the hearts of the people that have come to this place this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So our church is going to start a new series. It's called the No Fear series. And there are going to be a few topics where we're just addressing different fears that people may have when it comes to um, associating themselves with Christianity or exploring this idea of God. So the first message is entitled, No More Fear of God. The next message will be entitled, No More Fear of Loneliness. Then there will be a break, a break as Big Camp is taking place uh, during Easter weekend. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about having no fear of witnessing. And then finally, no more fear of shame. So today's title is a little misleading in that it's not so much about being afraid of God. And uh, I don't know very many people who believe in God and yet are fearful of him. Or I don't know very many people who don't believe in God, people who are skeptical out of fear of God. But I do think that there are underlying concerns that both believers and unbelievers have about God um, and about associating themselves with God. And so we're going to be addressing a couple of those things. So today I've just picked two reasons why believers and unbelievers um, are two underlying concerns that people have when it comes to associating themselves with Christianity, with God. So the first one is this. The fear or concern that God is not as merciful as we hope. The fear or concern that God is not as merciful as we hope. It's difficult to balance out and apply this idea of God's desire for holiness or righteousness and his willingness to forgive. There are a lot of stories in the Bible where God executes judgment uh, because his standards for holiness or righteousness are, are not met. And then there are other stories in the Bible where God practices mercy and forgiveness. And the implications for us are that sometimes we really struggle with this idea of when do I practice patience and forgiveness and when do I practice judgment? And what I see today is that generally as Christians, we kind of err on the side of judgment as opposed to erring on the side of mercy. And so if somebody uh, says something or does something that we don't agree to or we don't agree with, then the general tendency is to judge and to condemn. And so the outside world and even the church inside itself kind of has this picture that God is judgmental, the church is judgmental. So today I want to share a story in the Bible that should frame our perception of how God judges and how God applies righteousness and mercy. So if you have your white Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 8. Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 8. If you have your phones, then you'll be able to find the text quickly if you have those white Bibles. Page 781. 
Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. And for those of you who are following along in your white Bibles, or the World Changer Bibles, it's page 781. So the premise of the story is that the disciples are picking wheat and eating it on the Sabbath as they're walking through the fields. And Jesus has quite a bit of a following, whether it's people who believe in him, people who are um, genuinely interested, or people who are skeptical. And there's this group of people who are skeptical. They're the Pharisees. They don't believe in Jesus. And they're just kind of trying to nitpick at him, his teachings, his followers. And as they watch the disciples pick this wheat, they kind of say, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. They shouldn't be working. They're harvesting. Um, What are you going to do about it? And here's Jesus's response, verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. So here Jesus references the story where David is quite uh, maybe flippant with the Levitical law, and he's plain immoral. Um, He's dishonest and foolish throughout the story that Jesus is referring to. So if you keep your hand in Matthew chapter 12, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21. So keep your hand in Matthew chapter 12. And 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's page 242 for those of you who have the White Bibles. And I'm just going to kind of skim through and narrate a good portion of this story, and we'll go back to Matthew chapter 12. So first, first Samuel chapter 21. Um, for those of you who are actually flipping through the Bible, sometimes it's hard to navigate through Samuel, Chronicles, Kings. A friend of mine once said, if you just remember that Samuel is the king of Chronicles, then those six books go in that order. One, two, Samuel. One, two, King. One, two, um, Chronicles. So first Samuel chapter 21. And here in this story... There's a king named David, or excuse me, there's a man by the name of David, and his influence is growing in the kingdom of Israel, and the king who is currently in Israel, his name is Saul, he's getting jealous of David, and every time he sees David, he gets frustrated, and David becomes aware that the tension between him and his king is growing, and so he realizes, I could lose my life, and David flees for his life. So in the first three verses... Notice here, David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone, he asked. Why is no one with you? And here that word alone just means detached. He he realizes that David has a small group of men with him, and he is detached from the larger army. And this will make sense in a couple verses. The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I have told my men where to meet me later. Now, what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We don't have any regular bread, the priest said, but there is the holy bread which you can have if your young men have not slept with any uh, women recently. And back then, that Levitical law, uh, those men become unclean if they um, are intimate. And so uh, there, there needs to be this period of time where they are pure. So here's the priest. He has some bread, and David asks for food. 
And when the priest asks him, why are you by yourself? David lies to the priest. You know, he could have just said, I'm running for my life. Can you help me? But instead he says, the king has a special mission for me. And that's trying to, he's trying to get, he's trying to add pressure so the priest will give him food. So it's very interesting to me that Jesus here references this story where not only is David flippant with Levitical law, he is plain immoral. Later on, the lying or the dishonesty continues. If you jump down to verses 8 and 9, David not only needs food, he needs a weapon too. So David asked Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. I only have the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there is nothing else here. Once again, a flat-out lie. He's like, here's a soldier, and he's going off on a special mission, on a special battle, and he forgets his weapon. Like, if I were the priest, I would be thinking... What's wrong? What? <laughs> like, you forgot your sword. That's like, anyway. So, once again, David lies. And if you actually read through the rest, rest of chapter 21, David acts in a manner that is just embarrassing. So then why does Jesus use this story? Why does Jesus then, what lesson is Jesus trying to teach? And if you flick back to Matthew chapter 12, In verse 7, Jesus gives this incredible one-liner. He says, But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. So in God's scale of priorities, a positive concern for others takes precedence over formal compliance with ritual regulations, and sometimes even commandment keeping. Let me say that again. In God's scale of priorities, a positive concern for the good of others, or mercy, takes precedence over formal compliance with ritual regulations, and sometimes even commandment keeping. It may seem that God is primarily concerned with his people doing the right thing or being righteous in the Bible. But if you actually read through scripture, you'll see God is more concerned with how we relate to people who do the wrong thing. So in Romans chapter 3 verse 26, there's a verse here that talks about Jesus' righteousness or God's righteousness. It says here, God presented Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And so for me, it's kind of like, if God is trying to demonstrate that righteousness, how does he do it? It says, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. The thing that makes God righteous is that he is forgiving. That's what defines his righteousness. He prioritizes people over action. So humanity has fallen. Humanity is sinful. Well, what makes God so righteous? He forgives us. God desires a relationship with fallen humanity. Each person who encounters God is supposed to have this experience where they are overwhelmed by the mercy of God. 
They're filled with the sense that God desires connection and community. And that sense of acceptance takes away fear. It takes away anger, animosity, division. And the result is that the recipients of that love are then able to pass on that mercy. So in the Gospels, or in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I think it's really hard to accept this, as a, especially as Adventists, because when it comes to the defining identity of God's chosen people, we generally say the commandments of God, the Sabbath, the six S's, and so we kind of quote, spirit of prophecy, sanctuary, second coming, and you kind of list through those distinctive doctrines that make us peculiar, uh, peculiar. And those doctrines are very, very important. But when it comes from the mouth of Jesus, when he says, listen, there is an identifying mark that separates my people from everybody else. Well, what's that identifying mark? The fact that his people know how to love one another, to forgive one another the way that he has forgiven. God is merciful. We are to be merciful. There are so many moments when Christianity is known for its standards more than it's known for its love. And by doing so, we misrepresent God. I'm not saying we shouldn't have standards. I'm saying, and I'm not saying morality is not important. I am saying how we relate to others who do not agree with us is very, very important. Last year, I was in New Zealand for a month, uh, sharing a house with 10 other pastors. And there was one particular pastor, and I'm not going to point him out. We'll call him Pastor Bob. And Pastor Bob was very traditional. He's like an old school, um, he's an old school pastor. Uh, he's very outspoken, confrontational, and at times he was very, very opinionated. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, man. I hope I don't butt heads with this guy because I already know we're not going to see eye to eye on several different things. So my natural instinct, uh, but my natural instinct is to voice my opinion because I'm also confrontational. And for those of you who know me well, know this already. Now, Bob was very sociable. And during that month, he invited, uh, he invited me to play squash with him. And so we would play squash together. And like I got owned every single time because I'm not good at squash, but it was good exercise. Um, we spent time just kind of hanging out during that month. And near the end of that month, the topic of female pastors came up. I was like, oh, great. And he said something. And, you know, you guys know my wife. My wife is a pastor. And so now I'm thinking to myself, do I stand up for my wife and for all female pastors in the world? And I just kind of thought, oh, you know, if I just leave and I'm quiet, then, you know, no harm done. I can just leave. I'm not going to cross paths with Pastor Bob. Ah, forget that. I'm just going to speak my mind. And so we start having this conversation. And initially, I think to myself, man, we're just going to have an all-out argument. And this is going to be super awkward because most of the pastors here would probably disagree with me anyway. But anyway, I just we started talking. And it was this very unique experience where I didn't feel hated or rejected for my views. Um, I didn't reject or hate him for his views. And, and at the end of the conversation, we didn't change each other's minds. None of, neither of us kind of reformed in our thinking. But what was very unique was at the end, I just told him, hey, look, 
I really appreciate the fact that we can have this conversation. And we don't agree with each other, but I just feel like you're a genuine Christian. Like, I, I really, really appreciate that. There have been times where I've had this conversation with people, and it just goes really bad. Um, and so he turns to me, he says, I really appreciate that you're being Christian about this. And it was this incredible moment where I just kind of thought, huh, people that believe different things can get along. <laughs> and and at, from that point in time, Pastor Bob didn't ostracize me from his community. He didn't kind of shun me. We actually still kept hanging out, and uh, I actually have a very high... Um, I, respect, I respect this individual so much, even though there's a topic that's very close to my heart, and yet we disagree with each other. As Christians, we misrepresent God by not showing mercy and love to those who don't fit in our community, in our ideology, in our understanding. We represent God, we misrepresent God by not showing love and mercy to people who are oppressed. We misrepresent God by not showing mercy to avowed atheists, to the secular community around us that's becoming less and less tolerant to our faith. To the LGBTIQ community, We are increasingly burning bridges where bridges need to be built. We live in a time when it's becoming more and more important where God is known in the way that he wants to be known. I repeat Matthew chapter 12, verse 7. If you knew the meaning of this scripture, and basically Jesus is saying, Go learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. See, God is worshipped when we show mercy. You know, Jesus here is giving reference to a text in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And in Hosea, the book is just littered with God's judgment. But when he quotes this, He says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. The foundation of the covenant or contract or promise or agreement between God and Israel, it was mercy. And here's the thing. When God judges Israel in the book of Hosea, it's not because they had a struggle to um, practice goodness and righteousness. It's because they rejected God's mercy. They rejected his covenant. And the foundation of that covenant, it was mercy. The second reason why God, or the second reason or the misconception or concern that we have about associating ourselves with God, the fear or concern that God's primary concern is himself. The fear is that belief where God requires an abandonment of ourselves, of our identity, of our desires, uh, of our lives. And if we prioritize God, then it puts us in a place of vulnerability and nobody wants to be taken advantage of. There's a man by the name of Alden Thompson He's a professor of biblical studies at Walla Walla University. He did his doctorate in Old Testament studies. And he coined this term called the adaptive avalanche. The adaptive avalanche. 
And the turn explains how God graciously adapts to the devastation of sin. In other words, selfishness has devastated humanity's ability to grasp pure truth. And because we're so focused upon ourselves, then it's really hard to understand anything beyond our own desires. And so here in the adaptive avalanche, it's saying that there's this progressive avalanche that takes place in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So in the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve disobey God. Then right after that, there's the murder of Abel. And after that, there's a flood where all of humanity kind of turns away in rebellion from God, and God starts again. So in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River, and they worshipped other gods. So by the time we get to Abraham in the Bible, God's people are kind of practicing idolatry. And so it's kind of like the very opposite of what God wants his people to do. And so what is God going to do? His chosen people, the people that he cares for so much, worship other gods. So then he can just reject everybody and just kind of wipe out humanity, or he can choose option B, which is the adaptive avalanche. And it just means that God condescends to give not absolute, but practical truth adapted to the needs of fallen humanity, as opposed to calling humanity to a standard it cannot reach. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God communicates, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So because humanity is more interested in itself, God's ways seem foreign, restrictive, unpleasant. But what we see happen in the Bible is that God gives up what he wants and prioritizes humanity's needs. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. There's a story, and I'm going to give a few examples here. And the reason why I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this is I just want to show the consistency of God's willingness to let go of what he wants for the sake of prioritizing his people. 1 Samuel chapter 8 there's a prophet by the name of Samuel. And back in the day, the prophet was a really, really important role because if people wanted to know, God, what is your will? What do you want us to do? They would go to the prophet and the prophet would then direct the operations of God's people. He was kind of like an ethicist, a judge, a politician, a ruler. He's kind of like an all-in-one. And so what happens is Samuel is getting older and his sons are not like him. And so Israel kind of says, Samuel, we really think it's time to move on from this model. And, you know, there are other nations around here that are run by kings. And we just think that this is a good idea. We would like a king as well. So First Samuel chapter 8. And if you look at verse 5, it says, They told him, You are old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. 
Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. So here in this verse, it isn't God's original plan that Israel ever had a king, but Israel asks for one. And so God says, well, what do I do in this situation? Do I just tell them, too bad, and then raise up another prophet? But instead, God says, all right, I'm going to choose a king, and I'll give you a king. There's a, there are other examples in the Bible. If you read through different characters, especially in the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of the Bible characters practice polygamy. And it's this really odd thing for people who are generally um, – see modern-day Christianity and then read the Bible, they're kind of like, hey, you guys know your forefathers had, like, multiple wives? You know that's not an ethical or right thing, right? And so here, as you read through the Old Testament, you see moments where God says, look, kings should only have one wife. Or when God created Adam, he gives Adam Eve rather than Eve and Beth and Sarah and et cetera, et cetera. And so in the Bible, there's kind of this set standard. But then as his people practice polygamy, you don't really see God sending lightning bolts and destroying his people. And the question is, why doesn't he address this issue more clearly? And the answer is, God's people have strong desires. And now what is he going to do? And hence the adaptive avalanche theory. The other issue is slavery. There are regulations in the Old Testament around slavery. I don't know if you've actually read through some of these regulations. It's actually really, really interesting because there's a certain set of rules where um, the Israelites' fellow countrymen, if they were ever to become slaves, there was one set of rules. And then there's a second set of rules for people who are not Israelites. And I'm just going to put these rules up for you here on the screen. Leviticus 24, 44 to 46. However, you may purchase male and female slaves from among the nations around you. You may also purchase the children of temporary residents who live among you, including those who have been born in your land. You may treat them as your property, passing them on to your children as a permanent inheritance. You may treat them as slaves, but you must never treat your fellow Israelites this way. What an interesting set of rules. It's like, you can treat Israelites one way, and you can treat whoever else a different way. And there it is in the Levitical law. It's God's written word. You know that there were Caucasian Americans in like the 17th, century, 17th and 18th century, 18th century, where they would use Bible verses to kind of show that it was their divine right to be plantation owners. There were uh, different... Uh, papers and, and articles that were written, and there's a guy by the name of Josiah Priest in 1852, and he writes here, we believe that the institution of slavery received the sanction of the Almighty. I didn't erase the quote here. <laughs> so there are times where God is doing the best he can, and he's doing with what he has. But then if you go to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28, says, uh, Paul writes here, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is if you really understand the gospel of Christ, if you 
really understand the value that God places on humanity, it will take away the problem of racial inequality. It will take away the problem of gender inequality. It would take away the problem of free versus slave because his people would realize it isn't morally right to practice slavery. And so then why does Galatians 3 verses 26 to 28 contradict Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 25? And here what you see is God is trying to slowly get his people to believe in something better. And sometimes his people just don't want to move. And so you see God regulating that which is wrong. For me, the ultimate example of this adaptive avalanche is Jesus dying on the cross to save humanity. Humanity is lost, so what is God going to do? He dies, he dies for humanity. He prioritizes people. John Piper, um, he's a theologian and a pastor. He's an advocate for what he calls Christian hedonism. It's kind of like this interesting term, but basically the term means this. Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world, his glory, and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. There's one more verse that I want to share with you. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, getting my children to eat vegetables is like one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do in my life. Most of the time when I say, hey, Micah, here's some vegetables, he kind of turns his face and he kind of cringes like, Bleh! and then he'll make sound effects. If I give vegetables to Joshua, he just picks it up and heaves it as far as he can. And the, the, the dinner table becomes quite, um, quite a battle zone. So yesterday we were sitting down for dinner and I made a salad for the boys and um, I'm expecting this massive fight. And Micah looks at me and he says, vegetables will make me big and strong, right, daddy? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm kind of taken aback because, whoa, he's, he's repeating what I've been telling him over the years. So he picks up the cucumber and he says, I love cucumber. And he like sticks his mouth and he like, om, 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 chomps away. And I thought, there is hope. <laughs> there is hope. And for me, I kind of thought about what does God do as a divine parent to us who just find it so hard to trust and believe in him? Because when he asks us to do something, it makes us feel like he's being selfish rather than him asking us to do things that are good for ourselves. When we follow God's will, it may feel restrictive and our reluctance kind of takes charge and it makes us feel like we have to submit and I don't know why cucumbers don't taste like chocolate ice cream, and I wish it did. But sometimes that which is good and right isn't pleasant. But the scripture says God does have our best interest in mind. And by putting ourselves in the center of God's will, we get to see and experience the joy that is found in God. You know, when it comes to 
different reasons why we may um, struggle to submit or give God a chance. And the reality is there are very good reasons why people don't believe in God. I don't want to be dismissive and just say, oh, like, God is real. What I'm saying is there are real, real important reasons why people have faith challenges. But a lot of times, experiencing God is best experienced in the context of a relationship because God asks us to trust and believe in him. And the moment you place um, skeptical boundaries on a relationship, it becomes very difficult to prove the genuineness of that relationship. Let me try to give an example here. Jin Ha asked me a really good question when we first started dating. She said, why do you like me? And I just, I really struggled with that. And I was kind of like, oh, you, you know, you're really smart. You're really spiritual. Well, there are other plenty smart spiritual girls out there. Why me? Oh, because you're beautiful. There are lots of other beautiful girls out there. Why me? And I'm kind of, she didn't say this, but I'm working through what do I say that's like just only you. It's only you. And I realized without a relationship, I could never answer that question honestly. And she was asking a really good question because she wants to see how genuine am I, right? And what it came down to is I was only able to answer that question after years of us being together. But if she were to keep that as a condition for the rest of our marriage, I need you to prove your love to me. How difficult would that relationship be? Like, hey, I got you a car. I got you a gift. And it's kind of like, yeah, but you can buy gifts, and that still doesn't always mean love. Oh, I cleaned your house. Well, I could pay a cleaner for that, but it doesn't mean they love me. You get what I'm saying? It's really difficult to prove love in the context of a relationship. And here in the Bible, God invites us into a divine relationship with him. It's built on trust and openness. And so I think one of the greatest ways of encountering and experiencing God is being open to who he is, to read scripture, and to just say, God, teach me something about you that I can really experience today, experience and apply in my life today. God, in my prayer life, help me to encounter you so that I can know without a shadow of a doubt you are there and you care for me personally. I find those two things are one of the most incredible things that have really developed an awareness of who God is. And I can honestly say that, yes, I've encountered God in my life. I think a lot of times we preach apologetic sermons and we try to prove God, but we don't have to prove God. He's there. But I can try and give principles where you can be introduced to him. And so for those of you who are on that journey, I continue to invite you to press on in that journey. And as you Read the word of God as you get to know him, as you live out the principles that are taught there. May you grow in your understanding of God. For those of you who are kind of finding God for the first time, um, I just want to encourage you to um, take that step of faith or give God that benefit of the doubt. God, I want to know you today. Can you reveal yourself to me and see what he does? May God bless you.